All right, we are back. Asked a few weeks ago, as regarding this program, if I talked a lot about medicine, which is a logical thing to ask, being that I am a physician by training, I responded with, almost never. But I think on this segment, uh, we're going to make an exception and talk a bit about medicine with maybe a little bit of science and politics thrown in. I have to confess, every splash page, be it Google or Yahoo, or has a section on health, and I find that uh, the health news tends to be really usually not news at all. I'll dredge up some study done somewhere showing that something may be linked to something, or that those who do such and such might be more prone to this or that. In short, a lot of it's pretty half-baked. And when you start mixing commercial interests into it, well, it ends up being fairly unreliable a lot of times. But I got a pile of medically related things here, so let's take the plunge. Starting with one of those pieces from the Wall Street Journal about what so-and-so won't tell you. They had one last month on what therapists won't tell you. Usually it's, you know, 10 things they won't tell you. I like number six on the one about therapists. And by therapists in this case, we mean psychologists, psychiatrists, psychoanalysts, tea leaf readers, etc. Well, I liked item number four on what they won't tell you. I need you more than you need me. <laughs> Wall Street Journal know that after a few sessions, therapists often recommend additional treatment. But insiders say clients should watch for signs it's time to move on. They quote a family therapist as saying, if you feel like your therapist needs you financially, for instance, if he or she's pushing more sessions, even though you feel better, get another therapist. Number six really resonates with me. They note that a morning run might work just as well. Under the journal, a little exercise goes a long way. In fact, the effect of regular exercise on mild to moderate forms of depression is similar to the effect of cognitive behavioral therapy. That's according to the co-authors of Exercise for Mood and Anxiety, which are psychologists from SMU and Boston University. They analyzed the results of dozens of published population-based and clinical studies related to exercise and mental health to arrive at their findings. There's little consensus on how or why exercise helps, but one of the authors says the public health recommendation for daily exercise, 75 minutes a week of vigorous exercise or 150 minutes of moderate activity, should be more widely prescribed by mental health care providers. And I don't know, 10 minutes of vigorous exercise a day or 20 minutes of moderate exercise a day seems like, seems like almost everybody could do better than that, wouldn't you say? And number 10 was interesting too. Time's up, here's a pill. Note the journal, there's been a surge in the use of medication to treat mental health problems. Duh. In 2005, a mere 11% of psychiatrists used talk therapy with all their clients, down from 19% back in 1996. Similarly, the proportion of patients visiting psychiatrists for talk therapy fell to 29% from 44% in the same period. One possible reason, psychiatrists get reimbursed by insurance companies at a lower rate for a 45-minute psychotherapy session than for a 15-minute medication visit, the study found. As we talked about on this show many times, there's a lot of perverse incentives in medicine that are not working to any of our advantages, unless by our we mean, you know, you're an insurance company. So yes, as we talked about on this show, um, but anyway, to back into exercise, yeah, it's just it's one of those few things that's everything it's cracked up to be. There aren't a whole lot of such things in life. And if you don't want to exercise, you could always meditate because the practice of sitting quietly and clearing the mind of all thoughts 
has been shown to dramatically improve heart health, according to a new long-term study. In that study, researchers divided 200 adults with heart disease into two groups. One were taught to meditate for 20 minutes twice a day. The other group was encouraged to spend a similar amount of time exercising and preparing healthy meals. After a decade, researchers found that those who had meditated for the recommended time reduced their risk of heart attack and stroke by 66%, which is pretty good. And, of course, previous studies have shown that meditation can do a whole lot of good things. It can reduce anger and, and can encourage happiness. But I like the quote from one of the study authors, but um, we don't know how it works. Well, the truth is, we don't know how a lot of things work. And here's a medical letter from the Jean-Paul Sartre file. Recent article in LiveScience.com notes that if thinking about your own death freaks you out, there may be an over-the-counter solution. A new study was done showing that the main ingredient of Tylenol, which is acetaminophen, can help calm existential dread in the same way it reduces the physical pain of a headache. I love how they did this study. To get volunteers worried about their own mortality, University of British Columbia researchers asked them to watch scenes from a surreal David Lynch film, Rabbits, or to write several paragraphs about what they thought would happen to their bodies when they died. Those who were given Tylenol before engaging in those depressing acts were significantly less upset by them than those who were given a placebo. Speculates the study author, we think Tylenol is blocking existential unease in the same way it prevents pain because a similar neurologic process is responsible for both types of distress. Well, maybe. A friend of mine pulled up in front of my house uh, last week with a turbo diesel truck. My response was, so I guess you don't care about what you're doing to the air? He proceeded to tell me that studies done in Europe showed that diesel was doing better than automobile engines, and that's why the Europeans weren't restricting them as much. My response was someone along the lines of BS, We've been sitting on this piece since last March, knowing that over in France, where they embraced diesel fuel for its efficiency decades ago during the global energy crisis, uh, well, they're giving it a second thought. The World Health Organization has just classified diesel as a carcinogen and says diesel fumes are responsible for more than 40,000 premature deaths in France every year. Of course, part of the problem over there is they subsidize it with a tax benefit. Diesel is a... Is, is more advantageous than it would be, thanks to the fact that the government subsidizes it. And as is often the case, the French will bog down in the debate. I don't know, as reported on this program, when uh, my friend Gordon and I were in Colombia two years ago and got caught in a massive traffic jam when part of the uh, roadway slid down the side of the Andes into the river, we were more or less trapped for hours with spewing diesel trucks completely surrounded us. We were, we were really, really were trapped. All I can say is this correspondent got sick as a dog. And I don't know about you, dear listener, but if you're riding along the highway on a bicycle and a diesel truck or a diesel bus goes by, you get that wave of nausea. Don't you think to yourself, you know, this is worse than the fact that it just stinks. In, in my medical practice, I had an atmospheric scientist come in, and I asked him at one point, is diesel as bad as they say? He looked me in the eye and said, yes, it is. So we're going to look into this. We know some atmospheric scientists from UC Davis. We're going to see if we can't bring back on this program to address the issue of the toxic diesel motor. Of course, toxic items can be of use, and how's that for a segue? In the New Scientist magazine letters section, they oftentimes have some provocative uh, exchanges. 
One a few months ago came in response to the query from a reader about watching um, someone knocked out on a soccer field. I don't know how that happened. Uh, responding to a bottle of smelling salts under his nose. The writer asked, what were smelling salts? How do they work? And indeed, do they have a genuine effect? Because you don't hear about people using them so much anymore. Noted the magazine, smelling salts are ammonium carbonate crystals, more or less, which on contact with water release pungent ammonia gas. The bottle of smelling salts holds the reagents in separate compartments, designed so the crystals would be wetted upon opening. They note that the effect is genuine. As the player inhales, the ammonia irritates their nostrils, triggering two physiologic responses that help revive them. First, irritating the nasal lining causes a sharp intake and exhalation of breath, drawing in more air, increasing oxygenation of the blood. This reflex occurs even when fully unconscious. The irritation also sparks heightened activity of the sympathetic nervous system, raising heart rate and blood pressure. Noted the magazine, the face slapping used to revolve boxer Rocky Balboa in the Rocky movies similarly worked through irritation. They note you don't see this as much anymore because, uh, well, their use was banned by the International Boxing Union in the 1950s and as discouraged by the English Football Association because the athlete's outward immediate recovery makes it hard to assess the severity of brain trauma and the risk of ensuing complications. I don't know whether they still keep them in emergency rooms or not. When I used to work in them, they did. Once a nurse during a boring night shift decided to test them. And I'm here to tell you, I can verify the fact that they do irritate your nostrils in a big way. All right, and here's a piece from the Journal of Family Practice, one of the so-called throwaway medical journals that a lot of us get sent. I meant to talk about this some months ago. I don't remember whether I did or not. But uh, the article was about how one should prescribe a probiotic with an antibiotic. I thought it was a rather startlingly poorly written article because it didn't really define along the way of which probiotics they were talking about because as we have reported here in Radio Parallax, probiotics are a great idea in theory, but so far in practice, we're still figuring out how to make all that work. So if in prescribing an antibiotic, people ask me, should I take some yogurt with it or something along those lines, some things you can get at the health food store, I just say, sure. Might help, won't hurt. But uh, believe me, medicine is still figuring this out. Even the piece which recommended using probiotics in theory was baffled over just what to recommend among various things you can buy in uh, health food stores. I do note that health insurances will not cover the cost of these since probiotics are considered food supplements rather than a proper medication. Although it pains me to agree with insurers, they got that one right. All right, here's one from last February that's scaring the hell out of me. Because from a medical standpoint, one would not expect this. But it turns out that rates of nearsightedness or myopia have skyrocketed around the world in recent years, especially among young people who spend their time indoors. This is reported in Science News last winter. Notes that in the U.S., 42% of people between the ages of 12 and 54 have this condition compared to 25% 40 years ago. From 25% to 42%, that is significant. Researchers used to believe that nearsightedness or myopia was primarily hereditary. But it's been noted uh, by researchers the gene pool can't change that much in a generation, not even that much in several generations. 
It's now believed that too much time gazing at books and computer screens is damaging kids' vision. I would say emphasis on the latter. Recent studies have shown that 95%, 95% of Shanghai college students are nearsighted. They note perhaps because Chinese children tend to spend more time studying indoors than students elsewhere in the world do. Yeah, well, how much of that time indoors are they looking at computer screens? It's noted that rates of this condition appear to be rising only among urban kids as opposed to rural children who spend more time outdoors. The study authors speculated that it may be bright outdoor light stimulating the release of dopamine in the retina, which might help the eye develop properly. All I know is when you go to Office Max now, they sell you glasses for looking at computer screens. And, of course, they've always had things you could put in front of your computer to screen out some of the ultraviolet light coming your way. This is another area we will continue to monitor because I think this is a, you know, a scary deal. Why are people all of a sudden turning up nearsighted around the world? Crazy. And speaking of eyes, let's, let's go to our favorite eye surgeon. Admittedly, he is our only eye surgeon, but he's still our favorite, doggone it. So it's my pleasure to be able to say, welcome back to Radio Parallax, Dr. Gary Aguilar. Uh, what happened? I don't know, sunspots? Hmm. Well, when Mr. McMillan tries to troubleshoot that, I guess I'll pull another item out of the pile here. I guess instead we'll take the time to talk about naked mole rats, which are, in case you're unfamiliar with them, mouse-sized subterranean African mammals that, despite their diminutive stature, can live for 30 years. Since, basically, the smaller an animal is, in general, the shorter its lifespan, someone did the calculation that if humans lived as long relative to body size as naked mole rats, we would last 600 years. Apparently, researchers studying these animals have concluded that not only they live a long time, they don't get cancer. Some good people at the University of Rochester in New York studied these animals and determined, in their opinion, that the extracellular matrix of the naked mole rat, that's the gloop that supports the tissues, is rich in a substance that may stop cancers from growing. The magic ingredient is, is a polysaccharide called hyaluronin, which acts as a lubricant in the body. And apparently these rats have a special version of it known as high molecular mass hyaluronin, HHM-HA. It's speculated that the animals, which uh, spend most of their time underground, may have developed this to help it squeeze through tunnels. But they believe that as a bonus, this lubricant may confer some cancer resistance. This is leading researchers to conclude that if we could find a way to modify human skin to make more HHM-HA, maybe we could prevent cancer or live longer. Personally, I find this reasoning to be somewhat shaky. If you take the time to look at a picture of a naked mole rat, you'd wonder, why would you want to live 600 years with very bizarre, stretchy skin that allows you to live in subterranean tunnels? Maybe this will have some application when we finally go to Mars and have to live underground. I don't know. I think it's a little premature for now. And final item, not so much in medicine, but in biology, uh, opinion piece in New Scientist by John Bonner noting that Charles Darwin's theory of natural selection is so powerful that it's hard to believe an organism's features can arise by any other way, but uh, the author said, yes, they can, by random chance. Turned out author Bonner has spent a lot of time studying one-celled organisms, things like diatoms. 
or radiolaria, which are uh, animals with, well, which are little one-celled organisms with silica skeletons or calcium skeletons. They come in a wide variety of very curious shapes. The article notes that if you're a strict adaptionist as regards your evolutionary biology, you'd have to find a separate explanation for each one of these shapes. But if you favor the author's suggestion, you say that, well, these shapes arise through a mutation that's random, and there's little or no selection going on. They all just seem to work okay. My gut tells me this guy's right. We do welcome the input of any biological adaptionists who may want to drop a line at info at radioparallax.com, and then we'll have a spirited debate on this subject. Anyway, did you find Aguilar? I did not. All right, well, we're going to take a break then. We'll have to bring him on next week's program. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll instead go to another San Franciscan, one of our favorites at that, Mr. Will Durst. Hang on. <laughs> 